Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the podcast, The Endurance of Labor Laws. I'm your lovely host, Leslie Sullivan. Today is episode 294, and we're going to take a look at what is called the Banking Act of 1935. Very interesting information here. But before we dive in, let me give a big shout out to my listeners because, as usual, you guys are awesome. We love to see you here. So let me go to my list. So a big shout out to Virginia, Oklahoma, California, New York. Texas, Pennsylvania, British Columbia, Illinois, Florida, Oregon, New Jersey, Georgia, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, Arizona, Ohio, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Washington, Alabama, Nebraska, Utah, District of Columbia, also known as DC, aka the Swampless Drain. You got to get some good Republicans in there to do that. Really important. Let's see a big shout out to Mississippi, Kansas, North Carolina, Tennessee, New Hampshire. Rhode Island, Louisiana, Nevada, Maryland, New Mexico, Idaho, Michigan, Iowa, Alberta, Ontario, New Brunswick, Wisconsin, Connecticut, Manitoba, Hawaii, Newfoundland and Labrador, and Nova Scotia. In terms of countries, Singapore, the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, the Russian Federation, Australia, the Netherlands, India, China, South Africa, Niger, Slovakia, Japan, Denmark, Uzbekistan, the Federates or Uzbekistan, that's not plural, it's just one, Uzbekistan, the Federated States of Micronesia, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Hong Kong and Greece. Good to see all of you there. And just FYI, if we didn't list your country, I apologize. We don't always have the full list. That's just one translation that I am seeing that list there. So my podcast, let me go back to my other screen. I'm looking at my data analytics here because we have translated this show at least the text part of it into several other shows. So there's 1 So we have this show in 33 translations not including the one that is English so that makes 34 so this show started out as just a show spoken and written in English and then I decided to go ahead and expand that to other languages because I noticed that other countries were listening in so we are working on getting the actual show translated the actual verbiage but for right now in terms of other translations it's just the text that is in the description so we are working on all these other episodes to translate those into all these different languages and it takes time cuz you know this is episode 294 so it's it's very interesting how many episodes we have and the time and detail it takes just to do the english translation so just imagine that in terms well just times it by 33 <laughs> is really what it is times it by 33 um well technically 34 because that's how many translations we have including english But anyway, a big shout out to all you guys, but I thought about in regards to my podcast and how I want to do some of these episodes and how we talk about them in terms of subjects. If it's talking about a federal agency or a labor law or an act or legislation of any kind, what I'm going to try to do going forward is let you guys know, okay, at the time that these things were passed, uh was it during um when a Democrat was in office or a Republican? what was going on at the time is it still around did it precede it it's time that kind of thing so i'm going to try and give more detailed information regards to 
who, what, when, where, how, why. Because sometimes I don't always have that information in front of me. It's not always available. Sometimes, you know, things are passed, you know, over a hundred years ago. Obviously, this one is not. But well, we're getting there now. That I think about it. we're we're in twenty twenty three. Anyway, so um, it's it's getting very interesting here to see how these things change over time, right? So I'm going to try and do a better job. Not that anyone has complained, but I was thinking about my podcast and I was re-listening to a couple of episodes. I thought, you know, I can do an even better job because I like to know even more details and more background information. And also, I like to know is this stuff still around today? Because just because something was passed a long time ago, that doesn't mean that it's still current or relevant or actually taking place today. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. So today we're talking about the Banking Act of 1935. This was after two other things were passed. So the Banking Act of 1935 came after the Banking Act of 1933, and it also came after what is called the Federal Reserve Act, and I believe that goes back to 1913. Yes, I am correct. So this whole notion of trying to modify or maybe modulate um, the banking sector is nothing new. We actually did need this for the United States because there were many, I would say, I don't like to use the word traumatic, but there were some very serious events that took place before this. So what preceded this? So let me read it first, and then we will talk about what preceded it to give a fuller context. So the Banking Act of 1935 uh, was passed on August 19, 1935, and was signed into law by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was a Democrat, very strong Democrat, and um, the United States voted for him. And I don't think there were a whole lot of shenanigans back then like there is today, but he was a Democrat president and very interesting guy for sure. It says the act changed the structure and power distribution in the Federal Reserve System. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in detail later on.、Uh, that began with the Banking Act of 1933. So this act came after the Banking Act of 1933, and then the Banking Act of 1933 again came after the Federal Reserve Act, which was passed and implemented in 1913. So in regards to this Banking Act of 1935, it has three titles: Title One, Title Two, and Title Three. Title One amends Section 12B of the 1933 Act in regards to the creation of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and its duties, otherwise known as FDIC. So prior to this, FDIC was temporary; it was not permanent. So before FDIC came about, your deposits were, were not insured unless the bank could insure them. So you know, just think about that sticker that you see at your bank. I don't know if they have the same sticker at credit unions, although it is similar. But if you go to a bank, they always have that FDIC、uh, FDIC sticker. Excuse me, hard to say. And so it insures your deposit. I think it's up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars now. But I don't know if it's. I think it's just per depositor. I don't think it's per account. I will double check that because I've never had to look into that much detail with this. And plus, things have changed, especially with a couple of bank failures that occurred out in、uh, California, which I'm not surprised by that. I think it was Silicon Valley Bank, and then there was another bank、um, that failed、um, or crashed, whatever word you want to use. And other banks came together to save them and try and help them out. It says、um, the board of directors of the FDIC would include the comptroller of currency, very important position, and two members selected by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So I think that's a really good thing to do because 
you know, we have a checks and balance system here in the United States. So we do not have a dictatorship. So that's why it's very important that whenever the president selects somebody, that it, that it is confirmed by the Senate. Otherwise, you just have all these bureaucrats everywhere. And sometimes that does happen here in the United States with some of these federal agencies where the president can hire someone or they can appoint someone, but it doesn't go through the Senate. This is different. This actually has to be confirmed by the Senate. It's just like with, um, I would say, Supreme Court justices, and I think it's the Seventh uh, Circuit Court. You know, The president can nominate someone, but the Senate has to confirm them. So that is a really good way to have a checks and balance system. So that way we do not have a monarchy, we do not have a theocracy, and we do not have a dictatorship. So that's really good there. So moving on to this, it says they shall hold a term of six years and receive an annual salary. Um, Title I also established the maximum desired, or not desired, insured, sorry, maximum insured deposit. <laughs> sorry, I was thinking people desire to have money, and that is a good thing, right? Not a love of money, but just to desire to be successful. So Title I um, established the maximum insured deposit at the time was $5,000. Now it's either $200,000 or $250K. Things change over time. In terms of FDIC, the Act of 1935 made the FDIC permanent, meaning it was not permanent before, it was temporary, and include the following provisions. All accounts would be insured up to $5,000. Obviously, that is way more today. Um, at that time, 98.5% of all deposits were under the $5,000 limit. I don't really know about that 98.5%. I don't really believe that because we had quite a few millionaires back in the day. But unfortunately, we had the stock market crash and we had some businesses that never rebounded. So that's not always a true statement in regards to, you know, the majority of the population, their deposits were under $5,000. Um, that's, that's not completely true. Um, so things change over time. And then it says all banks who were insured under the initial creation of the FDIC are still insured under the new permanent program. So things just switched over, basically got grandfathered in, right? This says all Federal Reserve member banks are required to participate in the FDIC. Very important there. Smaller state banks, national banks who were not members of the Federal Reserve System, savings and loan institutions, and other similar organizations, they had different requirements for participation. Some of these might include credit unions and things of that nature. And also small, uh, I would say small mom and pop shops that have their own private lending business. Well, obviously, they're not going to be a bank, so they're going to be under different legislation. It says also all banks who participate in the FDIC were able to advertise and place signage in their business stating that the deposits up to a certain amount were insured by FDIC. Obviously, that is still current today. They still have those stickers. Uh, Title II, it It establishes a different type of board of governors. So it says Title II changed the name of the Federal Reserve Board to the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. The board consists of seven members selected by the president with advice and consent of the Senate. Again, checks and balance system. That's really important. Each member would serve a 14-year term uh, on the board. And I don't agree with that. I think it needs to be shorter than 14 years, my personal opinion, because I think you run a huge risk of, getting someone in there that's not really good, and then you're stuck with them for 14 years, and good luck getting someone to step down, right? It says, of those selected, one member would be selected as chairman and one as vice chairman, each serving four years in that capacity. So that's good there. Then it talks about, in regards to Title II, the Federal Open Market Committee. So Title II created a Federal Open Market Committee, also known as FOMC, 
The membership of this committee will include the governors of the Federal Reserve System and five representatives of the Federal Reserve Banks. The committee meets quarterly in Washington D.C., so they do try and stay up on things, try and stay current on it. Unfortunately, they meet in the swamp, so good luck with that. The FOMC controls how and when reserve banks participate in open market operations, and all such decisions go through the FOMC. So there is some pulling on the reins there, and sometimes you need that with your banking sector because sometimes banks um, sometimes they go under, and sometimes they they need to be told, hey, you can't do X Y Z. And here's the thing, it's a very it's a very fine line when you're trying to. Make sure we don't have another catastrophe, but you don't want to hinder the private sector. Like you don't want to cause stagnation or inflation in your economy. So it's very much walking a tightrope with that.、Um, moving on to Title Three of this lovely Act, it says Title Three included 46 sections of technical amendments that clarified banking legislation. Now, or- ordinarily, I would not be for that, but when it comes to the banking sector. I think that is warranted there because of everything that people went through prior to 1935. It was pretty rough because you have to remember that this is before World War II. So、uh, the United States, we were bombed in 1941 in December, but we did not get involved until actually 1942 when we actually sent troops overseas and things of that nature. So this is seven years prior to our direct involvement in World War II, but there were things percolating. Um, over in Europe, in terms of Hitler being in power and things of that nature,、uh, moving on says in regards to these 46 sections of technical amendments,、um, these include, but we're not limited to, the rules of stock ownership. I think that's important there. Elimination of double liability,、uh, surplus requirements, rules for loans to executives. That's very important there. Rules of branch banking, very important there. Very, very important.、Uh, and you just think about, you know, if ever. You know, you have a deposit or a an account with a really large bank, and they have multiple branches. You want to make sure that every branch is functioning in the exact same way, and that every single branch under that umbrella of that particular bank is doing what they are supposed to be doing to go by the law, whether it's federal, state, local, whatever the case may be. But especially banking laws, because you don't want a rogue branch. Um, acting or misbehaving, I should say, or acting inappropriately, <laughs> especially when it comes to money. Okay.、Uh, also, they set up some rules about rules of securities transactions. That's important there, and the rights of shareholders. So, you know, if they are stipulating rights about shareholders, that means that shareholders did not have as many rights prior to this title. So, if you are a shareholder, you don't want to get duped, you don't want to get fooled, and you don't want to get gypped. That's why they expanded、um, these technical amendments. It was to protect the consumer and to protect Americans. Not that things were completely shady because they were not. It's just to make sure that everything is on the up and up as much as possible. That's the point of it.、Um, in terms of what all this new legislation included, it included four key points. Number one, it changed the title and approval process for bank heads. Uh, number two, it created a central committee of board members and bank governors to control open market operations. Number three,、uh, it placed the board in control of paper specification in regards to currency and things like that. And number four, it eased controls on real estate lending. Now, I'm very surprised by that last one because considering how much our country went through in the 20s and 30s. 
I'm surprised that they ease controls on real estate because if you think about who would have been able to afford real estate back in 1935 considering what was going on at that time. And also, you know, did, did as many people buy as many homes back then? You know, were, was it mostly renting? Was it mostly lending? That kind of it's not a red flag, but it piques my interest because if they're if they are trying to ease controls on real estate lending, that tells me that there must have been restriction prior to them implementing this which means it would have been more difficult prior to this being passed for people to actually own and keep property for themselves and for their families much less to pass it down to future generations so there are some things that problems do arise in different ways but in regards to this real estate lending is a whole different animal it's not the same as you know getting a loan for a business or a car or for college education which mind you back in these days it was very rare for people to get a loan for college education usually people did not go to college unless they could afford it or they could pay for it as they went so lending has changed over time for sure um but just to give a little bit more background to this and I'll close with this so you need to think about the historical aspect here so Franklin D Roosevelt was a was a president of the United States during this time he was very much a die hard democrat for sure. Uh during the 1930s was when um Germany was it, it slowly became Nazi Germany. It did not all of a sudden become fascist. It took time. Um these things grow and they percolate, so not always a good thing to sit on the sidelines of life and just let things happen. Um uh, but anyway, so let's back up even further here. So we're going to go back to 1918 just for a moment. Um prior to the Banking Act of 1935, Let's go all the way back to 1918. We had the flu epidemic in 1918 and then we also had World War 1. So, we had a, a tremendous loss of human life there for sure. Then you had the roaring 20s and during the 20s that's when things were just literally great. I mean, we had so many millionaires and billionaires, specifically millionaires. And then we had the stock market crash in the, in the 30s and then we had the dust bowl here in the central part of the United States, especially here in Oklahoma. And for those that live outside of Oklahoma or outside of the United States, you may not know what the dust bowl is, and that's D U S T and then B O W L dust bowl. Um it was very horrible. Uh, my ancestors survived that, but there was massive starvation in the United States because of the dust bowl. So there were several factors that uh, I would say caused it and and contributed to it, I would say. Um the dust bowl basically here well I'll just speak from the point of view from Oklahoma. So Oklahoma in case you don't know, we do not have the best soil here. We do grow things like uh, not so much corn but wheat, cotton and um hay and things like that in terms of um I would say in terms of farming, but we're not really big into like olives and avocados and oranges and lemons because we don't have that kind of climate and we don't have that kind of soil. So first of all, our soil is not extremely nutrient rich to begin with. We're not like the deep south and we're not like um you know Mississippi or California or even parts of Florida. Like we we just don't have that kind of soil. So also there were improper farming practices that were taking place. So people were not rotating their fields or their crops. They were just growing and growing and growing things repetitively on their land and they were not giving their land or their or their fields a chance to rest so that the nutrients could be put back into the soil. So we had over farming and then we had lack of rain. So we had a famine, we had a drought, 
And so the topsoil that usually stays in place here in Oklahoma, it became dust because it lost its nutrients because of poor farming practices. We had a drought, we had no rain or very little rain for a long period of time and it it led to our topsoil no longer being soil. It became dust and it just blew everywhere. So basically during the dust bowl, if you were to step outside and then come back inside, you would be covered in dust. It was very filthy, it was very horrible, and also this affected people's lungs and their breathing and things of that nature. It was very difficult. So because of that, we had massive loss of livestock. We could hardly grow anything. The the people that did the best were people that lived out in the country, surprisingly, because they could have like a little garden patch. The people that suffered the worst in terms of not having enough food were people in the cities because they could not grow their own produce and even if they could they did not have the means to do so cuz like my my family I've asked my my parents and my grandparents about this and I thought for sure that people that lived out in the sticks or the boonies that's what we call it, living out in the country I thought for sure they would have suffered the worst and technically that's true in terms of losing their their land their livestock and their I would say their way of life, but they were able to endure it because instead of having like acres and acres of land to water, they just used what little water they had in, in regards to a small garden patch, and so they were able to grow their own personal produce right there on their property. Whereas people in the city, they could not do that. So um, many people starved, and uh, we had basically soup bowl lines. We had massive homelessness. and that's just really sad. So all of that happened after the roaring 1920s, you have the stock market crash and then you have the dust bowl. Now I don't remember when Adolf Hitler exactly came into power because he he overtook a couple people and he had he had his own regime. He always wanted to be a dictator. He always wanted to have a regime and if I've never read his entire book, uh is it Mein Kampf, whatever it's called that he wrote in prison. um but he was not the best soldier um in the german army um but when he when he got out of the army he just kind of appointed himself in his mind as leader and dictator of germany and started thinking of these horrible ideas which he thought of actually when he was a soldier previously fighting in a different war and he just wanted to blame everything on the jews and then he only wanted to have like one superior human race well that's not how you have a superior human race you don't just have one type of person and and one type of genetics you know the way that you make anything better is diversity and he obviously did not understand that at all um but he came to power in the 1930s but it wasn't that all of germany was for him in fact many people were against him but because he had the power of his own little militia or military with him and he had the fascist party that he semi founded and took over um he had all that power and he he took over i think it's the the chancellery he became chancellor of germany and then he became a dictator so all this is taking place in the 1930s but it wasn't like super quick it was over time but it was definitely calculated so all this stuff is taking place over in europe whereas in the united states you know especially here in the bible belt states we were still dealing with the great depression the dust bowl and really tremendously stressful economic times. I mean, it was really tough for our families and and our ancestors for sure. So, needs to say, there's a reason why they they had the Banking Act of 1933 and then later on the Banking Act of 1935. Also, 
This is seven years prior to us entering World War II. Like I said, we were bombed in December 1941. We officially entered the war in 1942. I believe we declared war on Japan and Germany in 1941, but we didn't actually send people over, I think, until 1942, which would have been like right in January, if I had to guess. So there are many things that were going on within... I would say seven to ten years and then ten to twenty years. If you think about everything that happened, and if you if you think about one or two decades in a person's lifespan, let's say we live to be 120 years, right? 120 years old. 20 years is nothing, right? Especially in regards to you know how long you live and what what all you do in your lifetime. So there was so much that happened within this short amount of time, just from 1918 to 1933. Then 1933 to 1935, then 1935 to 1941, then very short and quick 1941 December to January、uh, 1942. So so many things were happening, and so what I'm grateful for, I'm actually grateful for the Banking Act of of 1933 and 35, and the Federal Reserve Act that goes back to 1913. Because can you imagine us getting involved in in World War II? And I don't even know if we were fully recovered financially from World War One at that time, because、uh, we 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 were in World War One and we had the flu epidemic of 1918, and a lot of people died. Like the flu epidemic of 1918 was way worse than COVID-19. That epidemic hit the United States so bad in 1918; it was very horrible.、Um, so COVID did quite a few people die, yeah, but not as many that it, it's not comparable. To as many people that died、uh, from the flu, especially in times past. So, like I remember seeing a documentary about、um, this this one lady. I don't know if she's a little girl. I don't remember, but she said that、um, in their town, the the flu of 1918 hit their town so hard that everybody would be sick in the family, and so they'd call the doctor. And back then, the doctor made house visits. Like not every city or town. Had a hospital. You mostly had a country doctor that made home visits, and so the family would call or send word to the the family doctor and say, "Hey, we're all sick. Please come by." And then by the time the doctor got there, by like early afternoon, everybody was dead in the house. Like everybody had died from the flu within like less than twelve hours.、Um, that's how bad the flu epidemic of 1918 was. So just consider yourself lucky. In regards to that, because we we did not experience that kind of traumatic loss with COVID nineteen.、Um, COVID nineteen that that disease is still horrible. I have experienced it. it it's hell, but it's it's more gradual, and it's just is just as severe. But the flu epidemic of nineteen eighteen, whatever strand that was of flu, it killed young people and old people. It killed babies. It killed infants. I mean, it didn't matter how healthy you were. It struck fiercely. So. You know, the, the United States, we we lost, I mean, quite a few people in the year 1918 and probably the year 1919, and then we're also dealing with World War One, and then you know our our economy rebounds in the 1920s, right? Then we have the stock market crash, then we have the Dust Bowl, and some people did die from starvation and from disease and you know complications to not getting nutrients. Like, I'm trying to remember if there was a if I watched a, a documentary or or if it was a study. That talked about the kids that survived the Dust Bowl 
how they were stunted in their growth because for many years for like the first I don't know 5 to 10 years of their life because of the dust bowl and the droughts and the famines here here in the United States they had a um a stunted growth in terms of their bones and things like that so there there's a generation of Americans that were shorter than usual because they didn't have access to the nutrients that they needed when they were growing up as a child So all of this is taking place within a very short period of time basically from 1918 to 1935 and then 1935 to 1942. So just think about what all the United States went through and how much loss of life we endured during that time. So it's very important to remember that you know yes we do go through hardships in our day and age but I guarantee you if you look back in history someone has suffered way worse than you. That doesn't mean that your suffering isn't important and that it doesn't hurt. and that it isn't relevant it just means that i think that we could all be tougher that's just kind of how i look at it and to me it brings me comfort to know that hey you know i survived covid-19 but my ancestors they survived the flu epidemic of 1918 in fact they survived multiple flu epidemics there were several of them actually over the years and also my ancestors <coughs> excuse me some of my ancestors are french they survived the french revolution they survived the bubonic plague and they survived um coming over here on ships. So I mean that is like way back in the day. So so if you think about what all people have gone through just you know your your family and your ancestors and also just I I guess the human race and civilization and what all we ha- we have survived and how we endured it and how we are like why are we here today kind of thing. Well, we are here because people they, they chose not to give up and and they're tough. So, you know, I learned a lot from my grandparents. Um I I didn't get to meet my mother's parents because they had already passed away by the time I was born. But my dad's parents, I did get the opportunity to meet them. And they were tough people. They didn't talk much, um but they they went through hell, especially when they were younger. And I think when you go through hell when you're younger, I think it changes you into a different kind of adult. I think it I'm not saying it necessarily robs you of your childhood. But I feel like when you go through really rough things as a child, it it's like you have to grow up a whole lot quicker. And so you don't really get to experience a pleasant childhood like from the you know, leave it to beaver 1950s uh middle class era, right? So not everything is like that. And in fact, you know, we you know, we as a country in the United States, and I close with this, we did not really have a huge middle class until the 1950s. You know, being able to stay home and raise your kids and having you know or being a housewife or you know having a stable home um that really wasn't always the case prior to World War II so that's just one of those things that sometimes war it it causes people to wake up to hey what do i really value and what what is good for me and what is best for my family because you know we need to think in terms of okay what is the best way to be stable and to have stability within ourselves and within our families because if if we strive for stability within ourselves we will have that within our family and if we have that within our family we will have that within our communities meaning our towns and our cities and things of that nature if we have stability within our cities and our towns then we have stability within our states or our territories and the more stable we are as individual states the more stable we are as a nation so stability starts with the individual and i think that became very apparent during and after world war 2 because the 1950s were 
I, I think it's like the the booming uh, the booming fifties. Like you know, there were many jobs. I mean, we had a lot of industry, and things were going really well for families. So that that's a really good thing there. The only thing I don't like about the nineteen fifties is that it raised a very large generation, aka the baby boomers, and I think they're one of the most ungrateful generations I've ever met. I mean, I think many of them have grown out of that ungratefulness, but I think they have passed that ungratefulness down to their children and to their grandchildren. Because just think about how many ungrateful young people we have today. Well, they didn't just wake up ungrateful; they had to be taught that, they had to be trained that way, they had to be raised that way. And you know, I just, I just think that we can do a better job of raising our kids and raising them to be really good people. You know, and to be givers, not takers. And I say be givers. I don't mean be poor. I don't mean be Catholic. I don't mean I don't mean be a monk or a nun. I don't mean being spiritual or like a a stupid, wimpy, whiny Christian that just gives everything away and then they complain about being poor or they think that being poor is being humble. There is nothing great or humble about being poor. If you're poor, you're stupid. Um, that's just kind of how it is. Because God gives us the ability to be successful and to be just amazingly good in our life, and to be amazingly successful and to live abundantly. And so, poverty is not a blessing; it's actually a curse. So, I feel like sometimes the the pendulum, especially within Christianity, it swings from one side to the other, and that's not God's will. You know, God wants us to be very stable. He wants us to be very rich. But we need to honor and worship Him, and I've noticed that whenever people put God first, everything else falls into place. And notice I said put God first, not religion, not theocracies, not monarchies, and not not religiosity, not a certain denomination. But when you put God first, and when I say God, I mean the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joshua. When you put Him first, everything else falls into place. But if you put your religion first, it's not going to work. If you put Your, um, I would say your your churchiness first. You know, kind of being churchy, being judgmental, or or if you put your your so-called poverty on a pedestal and claim that God's trying to teach you something, God's trying to make you humble. Um, you're an idiot and a moron. Like, do you really want to be on food stamps? I mean, poverty is not a blessing; it's a curse. Read the Bible, especially the Old Testament. You know, so. I always find it interesting whenever people claim that they're super spiritual or they're super holy or super Christian because they gave all their money away. I'm like, well, you're a moron because now you're not going to be able to afford your house. You're not going to be able to afford to pay your bills, and now you'll have to go to other people to get money. So, you know, all God asks for is ten percent. So why are you giving away a hundred percent? Like that's totally dumb because God's blessing you, but you're not being wise with your blessing, is what I'm trying to say. So needless to say, circling back to the Banking Act of 1935, I'm very grateful for this act and the Banking Act of 1933 and the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 because it really safeguarded and protected us, our economy and our currency and our country during World War One and World War Two and after that, because it created a firm foundation of what we will consider to be or what we do consider to be normal financial transactions, and for banks to operate. In, in a certain way that is federally regulated, so you don't have any of these rogue、uh, branches of banks, which probably was taking place during the Roaring Twenties, which is probably why we had so many millionaires, and then we had a whole bunch become not millionaires anymore, like they lost everything because there was so much instability. So needs to say, this is very important. It's very good that we have this because just think about if if we didn't have FDIC. 
if we didn't have any kind of ins- insurance or any kind of um i would say good faith in our banking system <laughs> you know we would be like a third world country where the government gets everything but they don't um help the people at all they just rob the people things like FDIC help to protect the consumer and so when you protect the consumer you're actually protecting your country so that's very important there but I'll go ahead and end it there for this lovely podcast but as usual until next time I pray that you're happy healthy and whole that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week thank you so much god bless and bye bye Down without a fight And I still